0: Today, we are in uh, uh, the end of Genesis chapter 41, and uh, we're going to pick it up in about verse 45 and try to get down through the end of the chapter, and that'll kind of finish up this section, this part of the story of Joseph, and then we do have a two-week hiatus. Uh, Next week, we have the... Speaker coming in from uh, Chosen People Ministries, and then the next week is the kickoff uh, time for Sunday School. Uh, apparently, some of you are going to be gone that weekend anyway. Uh, but if you uh, uh, if you're not, I encourage you to come, even though you are, uh, even if you are planning to stay in this class and you're not particularly interested in looking around at other classes. This is still a good opportunity for you to hear what the other classes are doing and and uh and see what else is going on at church and it kind of puts you in touch with with other things that are going on so it'll be a good time to hear what the other classes are doing and you'll be able to mingle around with others and and talk to others from other classes and so that'll be good and and we may even uh get some ideas of things we could be doing uh differently here in our class so uh that'll just that'll be a good time and I'm looking forward to it uh And that'll be on the 23rd. So that's what's on the agenda. So you'll notice that the handouts I gave you today are dated for October 30th. I believe that's correct. Last week, we were uh, still in the uh, middle of chapter 41. And uh, and we ended at verse 44. uh, So I think we began about verse 20, 28 or so. Uh, 25, I don't remember where we began exactly last week, but uh, look down through that passage uh, before we read today's passage, look down at at the middle of that chapter and kind of remind yourself of the things that we talked about last week, what things come to your mind uh, that we talked about last week.
1: and uh, he talked about how God was you know, this, you know Joseph whether he, uh, he recommended the wise man whether he think about himself or not but they were really overreactive and I think that's God in other words he he could have just appointed him as okay you had a brain huh that's what he was talking about he, said he made him faithfully ruler of the country Yeah. way more than what he and Joseph recommended or what Really should have happened. So you think, well, that that has to be God, or you know, maybe Pharaoh was sit back, you know, really tired of
0: Pharaoh. Maybe he was down in the polls and <laughs> by the... <laughs> uh, he
1: was sitting back and Yeah. And <laughs> the yeah. Uh, he really didn't have to give him that much authority. Yeah. You know? that's kind of
0: a pattern though isn't it with the life of Joseph because that's what happened with Potiphar in Potiphar's house and, and then what happened in the prison they just kind of turned it all over to him the guy's better at this than I am let him do the work yeah that is that is interesting yeah
1: now considering if they looked at the Pharaoh if I remember correctly as being God uh-huh but that was that was quite quite a, an advancement. Yep. yeah yeah well, the thing I wondered about it kind of I didn't, you may have talked about this last week. I left bar with too. Um,
0: we always save the best for after you leave, Jim. Okay, well, so. then this will be a reminder. <laughs> this is really good. Um,
1: there's a couple of places in there, and I, I don't know if it's in this little segment we were talking about last week, but where <clears throat> Joseph says to Pharaoh, God is showing you what he is getting ready to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, that is really telling to me that uh, God is going to do this. And I don't know if you address that part of it. And then in the bigger picture, why? Why is this, you know, okay, God's getting ready to do this thing where there's this you know, abundance and there's a famine and so you have to kind of ask, Well, why why is that going on? It sounds like God could have said I think we're not going to have a family right now, or yes, we're going to have this great family. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm making it sound like real arbitrary, but I'm sure it's right. not that way. But the point being, there was so much opportunity for God to do whatever He wanted in whatever way that He did it this particular way because yeah. of Joseph. I'm guessing. I did you have you addressed that kind of
0: well? Uh, we only a little bit, and I'm hoping we can get into that some today. Actually, in today's lesson, but but but, really, what we 're dealing with here is the question of the problem of evil. You know the question is why does evil happen? Does God actually direct that famines and floods and tsunamis and fires and all those kinds of things happen uh, and And I think uh, clearly we understand that it's not that's not God's perfect will or God's perfect intention, and yet he very clearly allows these things to happen and it, And in one sense, he establishes that they'll happen. Okay, so so evil is something that that we understand God is has sovereign control, he could avoid it, he could prevent it or whatever, but he doesn't prevent it, he allows it to happen, but but in allowing it to happen he accomplishes his purposes. So, for example, uh the the passage we've referred to so many times and we haven't even gotten to it yet where Joseph says to his brothers, he says, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's an interesting way of inputting. He doesn't just say, well, God just let it happen and 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 it's and he's going to turn it for good. He actually says God meant it for good. So so God in his The picture that we get of God, I think, in Scripture, in this question of evil and why do famines and things like that happen, I think what what we see in Scripture is that God does not simply passively allow evil to happen, but that He actually has a purpose for the evil that He allows to happen. And He's going to use that purpose for a greater good. And so that's what He's doing in this case. So that... That's a little bit, addresses a little bit. I'm, I'm probably not exhaustively, the question that you're asking, but... Uh, yeah,
1: because this really seems like it's, it's not just, you know, God knows. This is the yeah, yeah. I was
0: looking for... Where, where is the Which verse is that? I was looking for it real quick. Um, uh, uh, yes, there we go. Yeah. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God And God will quickly bring it about. So uh, I I think that's the point you're trying to make there, Jim. Is that it? Really seems like God's very active in this happening. And the question, of course, the real, the first question you ask is why? Why is God doing this? And of course, we see how God turns it to His purposes. In this one specific case of this case of Joseph and the bringing of the family of Israel down into Egypt. <laughs> but the question is, did he have a higher purpose? Did he have other purposes beside that? I suspect that he did because the famine extends throughout the whole earth and uh so so it 's not just a famine in Egypt and Canaan, but it 's a famine throughout the whole at least the whole known world at the time and uh, and we'll see more of that as we go forward in the story so So God is not only through Joseph saving the people of Egypt and saving his own family, the family of Jacob or the family of Israel, but he's also saving many other families, families from the Sudan and families from uh, from Heron and families from from Ur and Babylonia and all those places. And of course, it wasn't Babylon at the time, but uh, but from all over those areas of the world are being people are being saved through this process. So, what God's ultimate purpose or overall purpose? And that I don't think Scripture really tells us.
1: Well, more directly, verse twenty-five it said, "God has told prepare what He is about to do." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That that's even more direct. Yeah, than yeah. God doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Christianity is basically all over the place. Like the the flood in New Orleans, for example, or the tornado mm-hmm. or wherever mm-hmm. you know, you hear people saying, God is judging those people for doing this, yeah. and the other people yeah. I mean, say, Oh no, God loves people and he would never do that. You, yeah. know, so you get yeah. this broad yeah, you know, confusion.
0: Yeah. And there are some places where we just don't have the answers. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to humbly acknowledge that instead of trying to Trying to give an, uh, a concrete answer to every question people raise, I think in humility sometimes we have to say, "I don't have an answer to that." Yeah. Back
1: when we were talking about him being sent to mm-hmm. in the promised mm-hmm. and we were saying, "You were in that tent that day." Yeah. Would you have said, "Don't, don't go. go"? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Would, so that's kind of part of that question. Mm-hmm. Hey, did you say, "Don't go"? Yeah. No, the way God said not well, go allowed. Yeah. So we don't need. Yeah. yeah. We don't see the answer. Yeah. Yeah.
0: and I really have even as we've gone through this study of Joseph I've become more convinced uh, and it's become more clear in my own understanding uh, than ever before how much it is true that every bit of evil that has ever happened in the history of the world and every, both moral and natural evil and every bit of evil that is going to happen before the consummation of all things, that God is turning that or will turn that ultimately to an exceedingly far greater good, an infinitely greater good. And so if we want to have an understanding, if if we are overwhelmed by the evil we see around us, then contemplate how much we will be overwhelmed, how much greater we will be overwhelmed by the goodness that we will see. In the end, as God takes all of this evil that we see around us and ultimately turns it all to good, it's really a pretty profound and exciting thought to anticipate what it's going to be like to see how God and His sovereignty and his power and His providence just turns all evil to a far greater good it's you know it's It's kind of staggering to think about but well, uh, anything else about last week before we go on? That you wanted to mention. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, let's pick up the story then in in uh, in verse forty-five and read down through the end of the chapter. And this is after uh, this is after Joseph has been installed in his position and he's gone through this kind of what we might think of as an installation or investiture ceremony. And then it says in verse 45, then Pharaoh named Joseph uh, Zaphanath paneah and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, born to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. When the seven years of plenty had been in the land, uh, Uh, excuse me, had been in the land of Egypt, had been in the land of Egypt, had come to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said. Then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Now, uh, just uh, by way of introduction or lead-in, uh, I, I want to point out something that 's that maybe slipped your attention, so it slipped by you, and you haven 't noticed this as we 've been going through this narrative but But in this whole narrative of the dreams and the interpretation of the dreams and and Joseph uh, uh, being lifted out of prison and set before uh, pharaoh there's there's kind of a phenomena that we see both in the events that happen. And in the narrative, the way the story is told, that I think is, is important. And yet it's very, very subtle. When, when Joseph was interpreting the dreams that Pharaoh had, the two dreams that Pharaoh had, he interpreted not only the dreams, but he interpreted the, the meaning of the repetition of the dreams. Remember that? Okay. And what was, what was the meaning of the repetition Okay? That it was certain and that God had said this and God was going to do this. Okay? So the repetition of the two dreams was was in one sense God's kind of exclamation point. God saying, This is certain. This is really going to happen. Okay. Now actually This kind of coincides with uh, with an, uh, an element that is observed in Hebrew literature. In in Hebrew literature, when you when you want to you know, when we, in in our literature today, when we want to emphasize something or make a point really strong, and we and we're writing today, what do we do? Okay, one of thing we do is we put an exclamation point, right? Or we might put it in italics or or underline it or put it in bold type or something like that, okay? But in Hebrew literature, they didn't use exclamation points and they didn't use italics and that sort of thing. What would they do? They just repeat it, yeah. So you sometimes you have a word repeated or you would have a phrase repeated or you have an idea repeated. And the idea is it gives emphasis to that point or gives certainty to it. And it's somewhat of that thinking that I I believe is in Joseph's mind when he understands the repetition of the dream is this idea of God emphasizing the certainty of this. Probably the most classic example we have of this principle in all of scripture is when the scripture refers to God and and says of him that he is holy, holy, holy. The significance of the holy, holy, holy. And and I think that's actually only one of the very few places, maybe the only place in Scripture where the repetition is three times. Okay? And the idea is to stress the absolute uniqueness and separateness of God. Okay? And so that's the idea of the holy, holy, holy. God is really, this is really important and this is significant and this is really unusual. Okay? And uh, so that's just one example uh, and there are many, many examples in Scripture where Repetition is used for the point of emphasis. Okay. well, what is interesting as we go through this narrative is how many cases we have of something being repeated or of there being pairs or there being twos. I don't know if you notice how many twos or pairs or repetitions there are in this passage, but let me just mention a few to you. OK, and we'll go back now to when Joseph's in prison. The first incident of twos when Joseph is in prison is what? Uh, by by two different officials. Right. So you have two officials and you have two dreams, Right. OK. And then you have two years. OK, and these are all things that the narrator is pointing out to us. There are two officials. There are two year, two dreams. There are. Two years from the time of the dreams until he ultimately is lifted out of prison. There are two dreams of Pharaoh. In Pharaoh's two dreams, there are two sets of seven cows and there are two sets of seven heads of grain. Uh, There are... Two, in the passage we've just read today, there are two mentions of Joseph going throughout the land of Egypt. There are two mentions of Asenath's father being a, uh, being a priest of On. An, okay? And there are, of course, then uh, towards the end of our passage today, two sons born to Joseph. Okay, So what we see through the whole narrative is we see this constant use of twos or this this constant repetition. And sometimes it's in the actual events that happen. And sometimes it's just in the way the narrator tells the story. Okay, But it's as if God is trying to say to us in a very subtle way, as we read this narrative, it's as if he's trying to emphasize something to us. It's as if he's putting an exclamation point on something. And what would that be? Well, the clue to that is when we look at what Joseph says, Uh, In his interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, when Joseph looks at at Pharaoh's dream and he interprets Pharaoh's dream and he sees the repetition, he says, he says, what I discern in this repetition is God's hand. God is speaking to you and this is really going to happen. And so I would suggest to you that this is what the narrator is trying to tell us as he as he recounts this story to us, he's trying to point out to us that although he is not saying at every turn in the story, God's in charge here and God's doing this. You notice that? The last time we've really seen anything about God being involved was back when he was first thrown in prison and it said that God was with him, just like God had been with him when he was in Potiphar's house. But it mentions that God is with him. But from that point forward in the story, we really haven't encountered the narrator pointing out to us that God is at work now Joseph discerns that and Joseph sees that because of the repetition and because of the pairs well I'm suggesting to you that that's what we ought to be discerning also we ought to be seeing in the in the many repetitions and the sets of twos and the pairs that we see in this passage we ought to be seeing that behind all of these events that are happening the certainty that God is involved The certainty that God is providentially working and God is guiding and God is directing. Because it's very easy when we're living life as Joseph is just going through living life uh, here and it's a pretty unusual life, but he's just going through and his life is just unfolding before him. It's oftentimes easy for us to lose sight of the fact that God is really in control and that God is really directing and that God's purposes are being fulfilled. And so there's this kind of subtle message that comes through in all these different parts of the story, the sons that are born to Joseph, the wife that he marries, uh, the dreams that he encounters that he has to interpret uh, in all these various different ways. In every aspect, God is in control. God is sovereign. And God is providentially uh, 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 directing in all of these events, so that the certainty of, so that God's purposes would certainly be accomplished. And so that's just kind of woven through the whole story. And as I think about that, and I think in my own life, well, first of all, I wonder, okay, now why doesn't the writer just come out and say, just, you know, in black and white, you know, well, God's doing this, and God's doing this, and God's doing this. Why doesn't he do that? Well, in our lives, how oftentimes do we hear that? How oftentimes in our lives, in the day-to-day of life, is it really conspicuous to us that God is doing something? Usually it's pretty subtle, isn't it? And I think, I think what perhaps the narrator is doing here is he's letting us look at this story the way we have to look at life, is to realize that if we're going to know that God is working in our lives, we're going to have to be tuned in to the subtle suggestions of it because it's not always really obvious. It's not it's not obvious when we get up in the morning and you know and we burn the toast and, and you know and we run out of gas on the way to work and then we get to work and we get a promotion or or you know or a job happens to go just particularly well or something. It's not always obvious in the day-to-day things that God is in charge and that he is with certainty, fulfilling His purposes in your life. And so sometimes we have to be tuned in to the, to the little things that clue us in. God really is working. And that is the life of faith. The life of faith is the life of, of not just waiting for God to speak out of heaven and say, hey, I've got this one. Yeah. But rather to look for those little subtle suggestions in and lives. oh, that was the Lord. That was God. God was working. Well, so that's one of the things we see woven throughout this story. Now, in verse 45, we pick up the story of what I would call Joseph's naturalization. Okay, you know, when somebody when a foreigner comes to America and they then and they've lived here a while and then they decide to become really a part here, we have what we call a naturalization ceremony. They are naturalized as an American citizen. Okay. And what we see happening here is because Joseph is now being elevated, this Hebrew shepherd boy who has now, been a slave and been a prisoner is now being elevated to the second highest office in all the land of Egypt and one of the most powerful positions in all of the world at this time. When he's being elevated to this position in Egypt, it's important to the Egyptians that he be an Egyptian. So they naturalize him, okay? And they and they naturalize him by doing two things. What are the two things they do? Okay. Okay. They give him a name and they give him an Egyptian wife. What is his name? Great! Somebody tried it. I didn't think anybody would try it. But that's it. Zaphanaphanaya. Okay, can you say that? zaphonath Panea. Okay, nobody tries. Okay, you're all a bunch of cowards. <laughs> okay, but that's his name. Okay, if you, think it was, if you think it's hard for you to say, think about poor Joseph. Every time he went somewhere and somebody asked his name, he had to say, my name's zaphonath Panea." you know. And those poor guys who had to call out before him as he rode his chariots through the streets. And they'd have to say, look out, here comes zaphonath Panea." okay. So here comes Zaphanath Panea. okay. This name becomes a glorious name in all the earth. And it's an Egyptian name. Joseph is given an Egyptian name and so all the Egyptians know him as Zaphnath paneah Thankfully, the narrator has mercy on us and for the rest of the story, he calls him Joseph and so we'll only have to call him Joseph. But he's Zaphnath paneah And this is his Egyptian name. So, when people refer to him or address him in his position, in his official position in Egypt, they're not constantly reminded he's really a Hebrew. But they think of him as an Egyptian. And then secondly, he's given an Egyptian wife. And who is this woman? Okay, she's the daughter of... Of of, uh, Potiphar, this is different from Potiphar, okay? These are two different guys. One was a soldier and the other guy was a priest, okay? But their names are very similar, come actually from the same root uh, name, but a very common name in Egypt. But uh, so uh, uh, Potiphar here is a priest of of On, which is uh, is the Egyptian sun deity, okay? And there was actually a city referred to uh, as on, where the cent, which was the center of the worship of on the priest uh, or the, the, this, the sun god okay uh, later uh, the, when the Greeks became familiar with the, with the Egyptians and stuff, they renamed the city and they called the city Heliopolis okay the, and we actually know where this is. there are actually uh, physical ruins of the city of Heliopolis or the city of on, just uh, a few miles about seven to ten miles north. Northwest, I think it is of downtown Cairo and uh, and the ruins are still there. We can see the uh, some of the ruins of the of the shrines and the obelisks and things that they had there in the worship of on. And and so this guy was the, this guy was a priest uh, within this very important religious uh, structure within Egypt. And it's his daughter who is then married to Joseph, whom Pharaoh gives to Joseph. Uh, In marriage. Now, one of the things that I that kind of piqued my interest as I was thinking about this is is uh, is here's this this guy uh, uh, Potiphar Potiphar actually. Here's this guy Potiphar, and uh, and he's a he's a priest, okay. And so I'm assuming that since he's a priest, apparently fairly influential priest that he's probably one of the guys that Pharaoh called upon to interpret his dream. Remember, he called, he called for all the wise men and stuff to come interpret his dream. And we understand that those wise men that he called, the magicians were the priests of the, of the various religious orders that he called. I'm kind of suspecting that this guy, Potiphar, was one of the guys who couldn't interpret Pharaoh's dream. Okay? Uh, we don't know that. It doesn't say that for sure. So that's a, a little bit of speculation. Uh, but, but I'm also assuming that he was uh, probably willing <laughs> to give his daughter in marriage to Joseph. You know, this would be advantageous to him. This Joseph is now going to be number two guy uh, in the land. And so it would certainly be to his advantage uh, to have. Uh, to have this guy as his son-in-law, so I'm assuming that he consented to this. Can you say no to the pharaoh this? Well, that's, yeah, you probably can't say no to the pharaoh, but I got a hunch he probably it probably wasn't an issue. But the question that, what's the question that comes to our mind when we see Joseph marrying this daughter of a priest of On? You wonder
1: what the pressure is for Job to worship
0: on. Okay. Okay. probably probably Yeah. So here we have an example of of one of the chosen people of God marrying a pagan woman. You know, I mean, it's probably safe to assume, at least when they got married, that she was certainly a worshiper of on. Okay. And so we might ask ourselves, well. Was Joseph right or wrong in marrying this woman? What's the answer to that? (laughs) Well, the answer to that is yes. You know, it'd be easy to say, well, he had no choice in the matter. But clearly we see that Joseph has such high scruples that he was willing to resist the advances of Potiphar's wife. And we have the example of the Hebrew children in the book of Daniel, who are told by the king, You gotta eat this food, and they say, I'm sorry, we're just we're not going to eat this food, you know. And so I would suggest to you that it was in Joseph's prerogative, that that he could have said no. He might have lost his position, he might have lost everything, he might have been put to death. But it was I knowing Joseph, it was certainly within his within his potential to say no. But he doesn't. And people struggle with this. And you're going to struggle with this probably after I'm done. I've raised the question in your mind. I'm not going to give you an answer. And the reason I'm not going to give you an answer is because Scripture doesn't give an answer. Scripture doesn't tell us whether what what Joseph did was particularly right or wrong here. However, we do know that Scripture is pretty clear about marrying outside of the faith. And so I would suggest to you that possibly here, There's a possibility maybe Joseph shouldn't have married the woman. But it is repeated twice, this woman's identity. And so, it's as as if like everything else in the story with all these constant repetitions, it's like everything else in the story, That whether or not it was right for Joseph to marry Asenath, God's still in charge. God's still in control. And God's directing through it. And two of the tribes of Israel result from this union between uh Joseph and AN, okay
1: yes well, she didn't volunteer well,
0: she was yeah she yeah. was drafted <laughs> yeah, she was conscripted, yeah
1: yes, yes,
0: yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and of course, we have, and we have the story of Ruth, of course, who was a Moabite. Of course, in her case, she did embrace the faith. She was a convert to the faith. Uh, I personally expect, I should point this out, though, that though, it, though there is some question about Joseph marrying a, a pagan woman here, what is clear about Joseph is it doesn't undermine his faith in contrast to Solomon who married all these foreign women and ultimately was led astray by them, it becomes very clear as the story unfolds that Joseph continues to be a great man of faith, trusting God and obeying God uh, uh, with, uh, with this wife that he has and with the children that are born to him. Okay? So this was, this was the process then uh, by, which, uh, by which Joseph is, shall we say, naturalized as an Egyptian. Okay? Uh, and then the story goes forward, and it talks about him going out throughout the whole land and and we see him functioning in his position as this great leader of egypt and he's uh, and he's orchestrating directing administering the collection of all this grain and 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 the picture is it just there's so much of it that they're they're just unable to count it all i I kind of grew up in the midwest, grew up in Nebraska and stuff and and uh and you even see that here some I think sometimes in Oklahoma, but particularly up north up in the up in the grain belt and where they grow grain, uh, wheat and corn and stuff like that a lot up in in the northern plains when they have a really good year, you know, they, if you drive through uh, Kansas, and Nebraska, and Iowa, and South Dakota. You see all these granaries. You see these huge, massive granaries they've constructed to hold all the grain that our <clears throat> that our farmers produce every year. But when they have a really good year. <laughs> They can't store it all in the greeneries. And so if you'll go through as you drive through, particularly in the early summer after the wheat harvest, uh, as you drive through those parts of the country, sometimes you drive by those greeneries and those greeneries will be chuck full and then they'll have just piles of grain just laying out on the ground, you know. And it'll be 20, 30 feet tall, and you know, and hundreds of yards long of piles of grain just stored outdoors, because that's the only place they've got to put it. And there's so much of it because God has blessed America with so much potential uh, for for growing uh, uh, food to feed the world with, and and that's what He was doing in Egypt. And they were growing so much of it, it was just. You know, that apparently weren't stacking on the ground. They Apparently had storehouses where they could put it all because they needed to guard it and that sort of thing and protect it for seven years. But so there's all this grain and Joseph is administrating this whole process. But while all this is going on, something else happens in the life of Joseph, which is what? He has two sons. Two sons are born to him. And the firstborn is Manasseh. And the second is Ephraim. What does the name Manasseh mean? To forget. Okay. Now, you know, when my wife and I were picking names for our children, it never dawned on us to name one of our children forget. Now, I think about it. That might have been a good idea. (laughs) Uh, As prone as some of them were to forgetting. (laughs) But... But he names his first son Forget. Why does he name him Forget? Okay, he says, because God has made me forget all my trouble and what? All my father's household. Now, I don't know that it's you, but That's kind of a troublesome thing to hear him say, right? Okay, this is Joseph. He's a Jew. He's an Israelite. He's a son of Jacob. He's part of the promised inheritance, right? I mean, everything about Joseph that's significant is that he is of the chosen people. And now here he is, 13 years removed, actually more than that, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years removed now from from when he was sold into slavery. And he says, I've forgotten my father's house. God has made me forget my father's house. And the question I would ask is, what is he really saying? And two, did he really forget? Well, I think the best way to understand the understand there he says he says he made me forget all my trouble and my fall father, my father's house the best way to understand that whole phrase there that whole expression is uh, is to understand it as a hendiadys. okay and hendiadys is where you have you have two words joined by the conjunction and and instead of being two separate to be instead of being understood as two separate things they're to be understood as as meaning one thing, okay, so for example, you invite me over to your house for dinner and you feed me this delicious steak dinner, and i say and I say to you, boy, that was nice and tasty now, what am I saying? Am I saying the meal was nice, and the meal was tasty well really i'm just it's all one thing I'm saying this is really a good meal, okay that's a hinndiadass okay well uh the best way to understand this passage, I think, is to understand that in, that, in this way. And we see a number of these in Scripture, in in scripture. And, and this is probably one of them, where what he's saying is, he has made me forget all the trouble that's associated with my father's household. Okay? That, that my father's household and the trouble that it represents to me, that he has caused me to forget. Okay, well, that helps a little bit to understand what Joseph is saying, if we understand it like that. But the only problem is he hasn't forgotten. How do I know he hasn't forgotten?
1: He
0: well, yeah, but we haven't even gotten to that part of the story yet. Okay, there's that. Yeah. But it's, it's more conspicuous than that, folks.
1: Yeah, because he was forgetting
0: he's just talking about it. <laughs> And not only is he talking about it, but he has memorialized his son. He has made his son a memorial of his forgetfulness. A reminder of his forgetting. Exactly. Is that also a Hebrew name? Are those
1: Hebrew names he gave his sons? Yes,
0: they are Hebrew names. He's he's given them Hebrew names. They're not Egyptian names, they're Hebrew words, okay? And he is memorializing his son. To remind him that he has forgotten. Now, why would he have to remember that he's forgotten? Okay, he clearly remembers. So, what does he mean when he says, I have forgotten all the trouble that's associated with my father's house?
1: Well, I think it's kind of like, when I was understood it. Like, you know, I move away, if I'm in college and stuff, I, I still, that's my home, I'm still back there, and I think about it. I go back there, once in a while I've established, I've married, I've established my own home. Now this is my home. And I've in a sense forgotten that that's my home. But that doesn't mean I don't go back there, I don't love people, or I don't enjoy it. It just means that's not my home anymore. Yeah, yeah. My home. yeah.
0: Yeah, what has happened here, and, and notice he says God has done this. What has happened here is God has moved me beyond that. That that no longer is a dominant thing in the way I think and function and operate in my life. You know, for many years as he was a slave and as he was in prison, certainly he remembered. Oh, you know, I know why I'm here. I'm here because my brothers hated me. But he doesn't think that way anymore. Now now he's got he's got a job that's full of purpose and meaning and significance and challenge to him. He's got a he's got a wife. He's got Sons, He's got children. He's got a family. He's, he's got a comfortable home. He's, his, his life is totally different now. And, and so as he deals with life, in his day-to-day dealing with life, he doesn't, he's not con- constantly reminded of all the junk that went on with his family. That he has forgotten. Not forgotten in the sense that it's out of his mind and he can't think about it, but forgotten in the sense that he has gone on to a new and better life. And God has given that to him. And this is really helpful to me because to me it helps me think about what I'm going to think about when I'm in heaven. Have you ever wondered when you're in heaven, are you going to remember this life? Well, I think like Joseph, we're going to be able to say when we get to heaven, God has made me forget my life on earth. But does that mean we will forget that we were once sinners redeemed by the blood of Christ? No, I don't think so. I think we'll remember we were sinners and we were rebellion and God sent His Son and He died for us and He forgave us and we will remember all of that and that will all be very precious and joyous memories to us. But all this suffering and all the affliction and all the turmoil and all the toil of this life, like Paul, we will say, has become a momentary light affliction in view of the surpassing greatness of the glory that we're going to experience in heaven. And then he names his second son Ephraim, which means what? Fruitfulness. He says because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And as I think about that, I think about I think about Joseph as he's being dragged into Egypt in chains. Chains on his feet and chains on his hands. You know, just, I don't know if this is the way they did it, but being dragged along behind a camel or something, you know. And he's trudging into Egypt and he gets his first glimpse of Egypt. Do you think the thing that was going through his mind here is this is great? This is a great place. This is where I'm going to become great. That's not what he's thinking, is he? This is the land of my affliction. He's put on the auction block and he's auctioned off as a slave. He serves well as a slave and it gets him nowhere except into prison. And then he serves in prison and he serves well in prison, but it doesn't get him anywhere. He's just a dead end. It's the land of his affliction. And then suddenly, in a day, he's elevated out of prison and he's put in this high position. He's given a wife and he gets married and he has children and his life is totally turned around and he begins to bear fruit. He bears fruit in having children. He bears fruit in, in seeing all this grain uh, grown and then stored and prepared for this famine that's coming and all this stuff. And he realizes how fruitful his life is. And he goes, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, what does it take to be fruitful in the land of our affliction?
1: When he determined his success, he said it was serving others and giving God's love and abundance of others. So, he helping. I mean, I think that's...
0: So basically he 's just being faithful right he 's just being faithful to do what God has given him to do, and he 's done that when he was a slave, and he 's done that when he 's a prisoner and now he 's doing it when he 's prime minister, okay but he 's just a man who 's faithful in the land of his affliction so that 's one of the things that 's crucial to being fruitful in the land of our affliction is being faithful. But what's the other thing that makes him fruitful in the land of his affliction? does the thing he says makes him fruitful in the land of his affliction? God. God made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. Now, when he came down to Egypt, he had no idea whether or not yeah, you know, I'm sure he probably thought, you know, this is a dead-end street here. You know, if I'm ever going to realize these dreams, i got to get back home. And he probably thought for many years that the key to fruitfulness was to get out of Egypt and back to Canaan. But God had a different plan. And God's plan was for him to bear fruit where he was. And Joseph was totally satisfied with that. And as I think about that in my own life and as you think about it in your own life, the question is, are you willing to be the kind of person you need to be to be fruitful in the land of your affliction? Or do we decide, do we look at our affliction and decide, I don't want to bear fruit here. I want to bear fruit back in Canaan. And if we decide that up front, if we decide we don't want to be fruitful in the land of our affliction, we may be shutting a door on the greatest thing God wants to do in our lives. Well, and so the famine comes and, and at the end of the story we see that he's opened the storehouses and the Egyptians are buying all the grain uh, and then all of a sudden the people from all over the world are coming to Egypt. And just in closing, I want to leave this picture in your mind and then when we come back together in three weeks for our next lesson, we'll pick this story up. But, but so people are... So you've got all... The highways into Egypt are all clogged with people, Right? You got all these caravans. You got caravans coming in, and you got caravans going out, right? And the caravans coming in, what do they look like? Okay, they're empty. They have nothing. They're coming with emaciated animals and empty sacks. And the caravans coming out, what do they look like? They're full, aren't they? Their animals are fed, their bags are full. They're just. Stuck to the brim because they got to take enough to live on for a long time, okay? Do you ever think about those caravans crossing one another at an oasis or camp out overnight? And here's, here's people on their way to Egypt and they're camped out here at this oasis and here's people coming out of Egypt and they're camped at the oasis. What do they talk about? Well, there's probably a lot of things they talk about and you can have fun thinking about this over the next couple of weeks. And imagining, but I think one of the things they were thinking about when it says they went to buy grain from Egypt, what is, who does they say they bought it from? From Joseph, from Zaphonath Penea. And so, all over the highways going to and from Egypt, there is one name being talked about it's the name of Zaphonath Penea. And this poor Hebrew boy sold into slavery in Egypt, his name becomes glorious over the face of the whole earth. Is that not a picture to us of Christ? As we, who coming from Him, full of the bread of life, tell the stories of our great zaphnath who has given us the bread of life, And we tell that story to those who are still hungry. Okay. Well, when we come back together, uh, the story gets even more exciting.